I just want to share a little bit of my heart for Michelle. Where is Michelle? I had the privilege of hearing Michelle speak, um, I don't know, I want to say like five years ago at a tea for um, another church, my husband's grandma. We went to a, a tea, and, and I had so much fun listening to her speak because she's from Africa. And not only, it's just fun to listen to her voice. <laughs> But I I loved her stories are fun, and it's just so great to hear about her experiences. But what I love about what she shares is that you are reminded of how God intercedes for us on an everyday basis. How he calls upon other people to pray for us when we need it. Not because he needs us but because he wants us to be blessed by that. And I love this woman and what she shares because her story reflects that. And her heart is to help make God's word come alive because God's word speaks. It pours down like rain. And Michelle has a heart for God's word, and her heart is to show that his word is alive and that it is active and that it is flowing out and through us in our everyday lives on an everyday basis because he is good and he is our God. And so I'm going to just go ahead and hand it over to you with anxious anticipation (laughs) for what you are going to share with us today. Thank you. So Michelle Teffler. Wow. I am so glad I came back from the bathroom when I did. (laughs) Well, I'm not too sure how this thing works. Usually you twist it and it comes up. It's either that or... (laughs) Thank you. Either that... There you go. Look at that. That was easy. (laughs) Oh, now I feel really embarrassed. Thank you. Thank you. Well, before we begin, I really would um, just like to go to the Lord in prayer. I always like to ask him uh, to speak... uh, at the start, simply because it's a lot easier than going to him afterwards and asking him to fix stuff. So if you don't mind, let's just pray together. Father God, I just thank you so much for the amazing privilege of being here to share your truth with these women. Lord, I know that none of us are here by accident. You have called us to this place for a very specific reason and a purpose. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be nothing I would do or say that would get in the way of what it is you plan to accomplish here today. And that, Holy Spirit, you would be the one to speak and that you would touch hearts and uh, change lives and let it be for the glory of Christ's name alone. Amen. So as Jennifer said to you, I am originally from Africa. Um, In fact, my parents, um, at least on my father's side, had lived in Africa since 1820. Um, And my husband and I met in a country called Zimbabwe, which has been in the news of late. 
um, for all the terrible things going on there. And we lived much of our time in Botswana, um, which is an amazing country that has remarkable wildlife and so forth. And in fact, I remember the, uh, I think the, um, the talk that I was giving the time that Jennifer heard me speak was about when we had lived in Botswana, we used to love to go to this particular place called Savuti, which was out in the bush. And um, uh, by the way, the bush is another word for the wilds. Okay? <laughs> um, so we used to go out into the bush in Botswana uh, to this place called Savuti. We loved it because of the amazing um, lion population that was there. It would be possible in that area to see as many as 20 lion in a weekend, you know. So we loved going there. And in fact, as she heard, um, during one of our camping trips there, we were attacked by an elephant, which in fact was incredibly frightening. Obviously, we did escape, otherwise I wouldn't be still here talking to you today. But it was really one of those awesome opportunities that you just, oh, gosh, it was really very, very frightening. Um, a lot of people, though, ask, you know, if you were in a campsite, which we were, what on earth was an elephant doing there in the campsite with you? And it is, it's a good question. Because, um, you know, Savuti was a wonderful place, and there was this river that had flowed through that area um, many years before. But something had happened, and the river had dried up, and the earth had shifted, and the river moved elsewhere. And, you know, the elephant did have the choice to follow the water, but they didn't. Instead, they decided to hang around the campsite. And what they would do. They would um, go along to the uh, the restrooms that were scattered through the campsite, and they would put their trunks in the open windows of the restrooms, and they would break open the toilet cistern. Yes, you, and then they drink, you know, from the this broken cistern, and you know, it it really is horribly disgusting, but it occurred to me that humans are like that too. Now, just bear with me. We don't do it in a literal sense, but we do do that sometimes in a spiritual sense. And honestly, the Word of God backs me up on this because the Bible says that when God speaks to his people in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he says to them, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. And it's this picture that as we go through life, we do have a choice to make. You know, the circumstances of our lives, just like for the elephant, may be hot and dusty and unpleasant. But in those circumstances, we have a choice to make. Will we go to God, the spring of living water, to quench our thirst? Or... Will we, like those elephants of Savuti, abandon him in favor of drinking out of broken, well, toilet systems through life? 
You know, the thing is, is that those restrooms in Savuti could never fully sustain those elephants. They couldn't enjoy the abundant, the abundant life that they could have enjoyed, just drinking from those things. And so too, all of the other things in life, the broken cisterns that we turn to to satisfy our needs rather than God, those things also cannot sustain us for long. And they cannot provide the abundant life that God would have us have. Um, you know, I know that uh, you sitting there might think, well, this woman, being a Bible teacher, she probably has had no experience of, um, of uh, broken cistern drinking. <laughs> but actually, I was very good at it. <laughs> no, it's true. Because, you know, people automatically think that being born in Africa meant that my parents were missionaries. And yet they weren't. I grew up very, very far from God. And um, I didn't turn to God, in fact, until I had already been married. And um, I... If you had to look at my life on the outside, though, it would have seemed very uh, much all together, you know? We had it all. I mean, you know, we had uh, position, we had money, we had status, we had friends, we had lives full of accomplishment, and yet, no matter what I achieved, I never felt as if my thirst was really fully quenched. Um, and then I finally came to Jesus, the spring of living water. Actually, I had been struggling with him for quite some time. I suspected that this Jesus wanted control of my life. And I was very nervous about that. You know, I, after all, I had a plan, okay? I had my goals. I knew what it was that I wanted. And I had everything worked out, I thought. I was very, very afraid of losing control and basically handing over the reins of my life to this Jesus. I mean, what on earth would he then say he wanted me to do? It was nerve-wracking, and I fought him. But one night I came to the realization that despite all of my accomplishments, despite everything I had, I was empty and aching inside. And there was this hole within me that none of that satisfied. I drank from every cistern I possibly could, and I was still thirsty. And that night, in my bed, in the quietness of that dark room, I gave my life to Jesus. And um, I remember actually lying there in the bed and saying to him, you know, Lord, I don't know if you still want my life, but if you do, please, will you take it? And, you know, I'm very, very glad to tell you that he did still want it, and uh, he did take control of my life. And um, from that night onward, a transformation began to take place within me. Now, you know, I think that if I were to look through all of Scripture and say, okay, where do I see myself? If there's a person in Scripture that 
is very, very close to who I was before I became a Christian and gave my life to Jesus, it would have to be the woman at the well that you read about in John chapter 4. Um, in John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem up to the north of the country. And he does something very, very interesting. If you were to go and read that story, he stays on the western bank of the Jordan River on his journey northwards. And that, for a Jew, was incredibly unusual. Because all Jewish people, when they were traveling from Jerusalem north, they would cross over to the right-hand bank of the river, if you're looking at the map, the eastern side of the Jordan, because they didn't want to go up the western bank where the Samaritans lived. They hated Samaritans who were... Um, partly Jewish. In fact, to the Jews, they would never agree that that was so. But long ago, when the Assyrian army had come in to take the Jews captive, some of those Assyrians had intermarried with Jews who remained behind, and the Samaritans were the people that came out of that union. They were traitors. Nobody would go that way. No good Jew would. And yet, we see Jesus... Um, not only going that way, but almost out of his way to meet with the Samaritan woman. And he ends up sitting um, at a well in the midday heat, and no one else is around, you know, because in those days, everybody would get water in the cool of the evening. People would avoid going out in the midday sun. And so he sits there alone at the side of the well, and this woman comes. She is the only one coming for water at that time of day. And of course, as we discover, um, it is because she's trying to avoid all of the other women in the town who'd be at that same well later on. John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10 tells us this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, of course, she doesn't realize as he's speaking to her that he's talking to her actually about her need for God, right? And so as she's standing there and he's talking about giving her water to drink, I can almost imagine her wrinkling her brow and saying, well, you know, how do you plan to do that? Because you have no bucket and you can't get water from this well without a bucket. And then Jesus goes on to tell her that he's not talking about well water at all. John chapter 4 verse 13, he says, it says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Amazing offer. And yet, she is still slow to catch on. I like her, <laughs> just like me, you know. 
she's still focused on her physical needs, right? And she turns to him and she says, you know, basically that she would very much like him to give her water that's going to make her never thirst again because, quite frankly, she is sick of coming to this well day after day after day. To tell you the truth, she's sick of the stares. She's sick of the giggles. She's sick of the whispers and the knowing looks shared among the other women whenever she's around. And the reason that she's hiding from them is because she has had five husbands. And the man that she is currently with is not even married to her. He's number six, and she's given up marrying the men by now. You know, the thing is, is we don't know what may have happened to this poor woman in her life to cause her to be in the situation that she was now in. We don't know any of that, but what we do know is that she had gone off and dug several broken cisterns all on her own, hadn't she? The amazing thing is, you know, that Jesus knew that. There was nothing about her that he didn't know. Me lying in my bed in that dark room that night, there was nothing about me that he didn't know. And yet, he still reaches out to her. He still reached out to me, and I know he still reaches out to you. This woman was very used to getting her thirst quenched elsewhere, but Jesus offers her something spiritual that will radically transform her life. And no sooner does she accept Jesus as Christ, the Messiah who was promised, we see her leaving her water pot that had controlled her life from morning till dusk at the side of the well. She leaves it. And she goes back into town to the very people she's been avoiding all of that time to go and share the news with them about Jesus. And it's interesting the way they respond to her because of it. Verse 39 in John 4 tells us that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You know, I love that about Jesus that he takes her situation as bad as it was to reveal himself to her in a life-changing way. And in fact, in the end, that revelation of who Jesus is would not only affect her life, it would also spill over from her life to affect those who lived around her. You see, God can use your circumstances too, no matter how hard they are. And I know that there are many of us in this room right now who are facing some real challenges in life. But you know, the truth is, is that Jesus is able to use those to draw you into a closer relationship with him. He's able to use those to show you who he is in new ways that you have not known him before. And not only that, what happens in your heart, he can use that to impact the lives of others around you. You know, when I first became a Christian, I thought, great, 
That's wonderful. Now life is going to be easy, right? Everything's going to go just the way I've always wanted it to. It's going to be a bed of roses, and there sure won't be any thorns at all. But the more I began to read the Bible, the more I began to see that that is not what the Bible promises, okay? But what it does say is that through the hardships, through the trials, through the difficulties of life, God will be with you. What happens to you matters to him. And no matter how hard it gets, never will he leave you nor forsake you. Now, you know, there wouldn't be any purpose in me telling you all of that if I couldn't give you some examples of when I have found that to be true in my own life. Um, My husband, Colin, and I, um, we actually struggled to have children. And in fact, it was nine years before I conceived. Nine years of trying, that is, not nine years of marriage. But once we started trying, it took nine years for um, me to conceive. And in fact, we had recently got to the stage of absolute acceptance. You know, Lord, we don't understand why we're not having children, but we're willing to follow you irrespective of whether we have our way or not. And it was almost as soon as we had decided that, that I suddenly conceived. Well, just 10 weeks into the pregnancy, though, I threatened to miscarry. And um, it, was, it was very, very, very serious. And I had to spend almost seven weeks in bed. I was up for a short while after that. The threat of the miscarriage had been averted. Um, but... Towards the end of the pregnancy, I got incredibly ill again, and I was in hospital just as much as I was out of hospital. I'd go into hospital for a week, come out for a week, in for a week, out for a week. And, you know, the thing is, is whenever I was out of hospital, I I was always there at church, and I was always down in the front row after the service. You know when they say, does anybody want any prayer? I was there, okay? Okay. It was slower than that. I was pregnant. (laughs) But I'd be down the front, you know. I knew that God could heal me. And I asked every Sunday that I was able to be in church. I knew that he could heal me. And yet he didn't. Well, one morning I was back in hospital And as I sat there in my bed with my Bible open, I went to him, the spring of living water. And um, as I did, I read a scripture that I had never seen before. In fact, it's from Psalm 77, verse 19. Now, the whole psalm is David recounting how God led his people through Moses and the amazing things that transpired. And it concludes with how God led his people by Moses through the Red Sea. And it's what is said in verse 19 that really struck me. It kind of shone off the page, okay? And it says this, speaking of God, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not 
seen. And you know, for the first time that morning, I realized what it must have been like for those people to follow God under those circumstances. I mean, surely they would have looked at what lay ahead of them and said, right, do we have a boat? Do we have a bridge? Moses, are you sure there isn't a way around? But God said, go through. And more than that, his footprints were not seen. It occurred to me that morning that God had brought me to my own kind of Red Sea. He was asking me to go through the circumstance, even though I would want another route. I wanted a different route. I wanted a way around. And if there was a boat, that would be great. But he was saying to me, Michelle, I love you and I want you to go through, even though this doesn't make sense to you right now even though you don't see my footprints. And I think God often brings us to the point of asking us to go through things rather than avoid them as we would prefer. And it is for good reason. Think about those Israelites. Once they went through the Red Sea, the very obstacle that they had feared was the very thing God used to destroy the enemies who... um, followed on after them, who pursued them. And, you know, the thing is, is that the Israelites were a lot freer the other side of that obstacle than they had been before they'd made the crossing. So, you know, if we're willing to trust God, he can do remarkable things in us as a result of that. So I sat there in my hospital bed that day, willing to trust God. And I want to tell you, things got a lot worse. It wasn't long, and I had to have an emergency C-section. Now, for those who know anything about blood pressure, you will be uh, shocked to know that my blood pressure at the point of them doing the C-section was 220 over 120. And I remember the doctor saying to me, we are worried about you having an aneurysm. And to tell you the truth, we cannot even wait for your husband to get here. You have to go into surgery now. And I said, because I was only 35 weeks along, I said, but what about my baby? And he told me, this doctor, he said, All we can do is pray, but if we don't take the baby out now, we will lose you. So I went into surgery without my husband. Straight after surgery, I was put into intensive care, and our little son, Stephen, was born, and he went straight into the neonatal care. Um, He was only four pounds, but he was fine. And he continues to be fine to this day. He's 16 now and uh, just going for his driving license in the next couple of weeks. So, 
Okay, God still tests us and still causes us to trust him, doesn't he? But um, I remember after coming out of the hospital and, you know, once I had been discharged home and everything, I was at a woman's meeting. It must have been maybe four months after giving birth to Stephen. And I was at a woman's meeting and I was sitting there and I was feeding Stephen and um, one of the other women in the group came over to me and she said, um, she was just watching for a while, and she said, so tell me, are you ever going to be able to have more children or will Stephen be your Isaac? And I said to her, you know, I have spoken to the Lord about that and I've told him that I would dearly love a little Megan. But honestly, I cannot go through another pregnancy like this. You know, not with a toddler. You just don't, you can't be in bed that often, you know. And um, so anyway, that's what I told her. Well, when Stephen was eight months old, I began to feel ill. I thought I had the flu. And as it turned out, no, I didn't. <laughs> I, I was pregnant again. And I went to the doctor, and I still remember he did not congratulate me. All he did was when he said, yes, you are pregnant, all he did was say, oh. And that was it. Well, I want you to know, I went on to have a perfectly normal pregnancy to the surprise of all of the specialists. I went full term. Of course, they did give me a C-section because they didn't want any problems to arise during delivery. Um, and full term, our little girl, Megan, was born. Now, you know, would I want to go through all of that again? We have two miracle babies as a result. But would I want to go through all of that again? No. But I can tell you what I did learn about God through that is that he is faithful. And even in the midst of great hardship, there are streams of refreshing that will flow from him through his word to us. And you know, the other thing I learned is that doctors are not God. And he is not limited by their prognosis either. Difficulties and trials do have a purpose. You know, they are not always resolved in the way that we would like. And I know some of you may be even sitting here thinking, I wish mine had had an ending like that. My trial was entirely different. But irrespective of the outcome, they do have the potential to draw us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And during the course of them, Jesus often reveals himself to us in a way that we did not know him before. Um, of course, the thing is, you know, just like that uh, little story about the cup who had to keep going back into the fireplace to be all that it could be, how I wish it would just require one trial and then, whoops, done, you're beautiful, off you go. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, is that throughout our walk with him, the Lord brings us back to times of trial um, and it's for good reason. I love the fact somebody once said that um, the fertile soil for growth is never found on the mountaintops. It's in the valleys. 
And so as we walk with the Lord, there are highs and there are lows. And it is during the low times that we can grow in the most remarkable ways. Last year in October, I started struggling with some hormone fluctuations. And so I went to my OBGYN and she decided to put me on a very low dose birth control pill. And she told me that this is going to resolve all of your problems, just even you right out, be perfect. Well, on the evening of um, Thursday, November the 13th, I was getting ready Uh, It was about 9 o'clock at night to go and pick my son up from his uh, small group, his Bible study group. And um, I remember I was even bending down to put on my shoes when suddenly I got a terrible, terrible pain in my chest. And I became very, very breathless. Um, I had to actually sit down on the side of the bed and just breathe for a while. And it did improve throughout the course of the evening. But I knew that something was wrong. So I called my doctor, who's remarkably difficult to get into. And it was the day of the Montecito fire. And remarkably, somebody had canceled their appointment. And so I was able to find a spot. I went into the doctor. And I did tell them that I had been put on this low-dose birth control pill as a way of um, regulating my hormones. But despite having told them that, I was misdiagnosed for a whole week. I was told that I was suffering from everything from asthma. Uh, Let's see, what else did I have? Oh, yes, acid reflux was another one. And then my personal favorite was that I might be having a panic attack to which I told them that the only attack one need fear was what I was likely to do to them. No. uh, (laughs) Anyway, no, I didn't say that. I just said that that's crazy. I'm not having a panic attack. But now by Wednesday, November 19th, almost a week later, I was still no further along in my quest to find out what exactly was wrong with me. And in fact, to be honest with you, I knew I'd had even a second incident where, again, I got exceedingly breathless and I had this terrible pain here, which I thought maybe was uh, kidneys or something, you know. I thought that's general kidney region, so maybe it's a kidney stone. Uh, Why I'd have one of those, I have no idea, but I thought, well, you know, it's not anything else, you know. Well, that Wednesday morning, I had to speak three times at, a, at my church. And um, I did know by that stage that something was incredibly wrong. But believe me, I'd done my best to find out what, and I'd been unable to. And so I actually remember standing in my bedroom that morning and praying, Lord, I don't want to die but I do want to fulfill my commitments. And with that, um, I went to church and I taught all three lessons. Now, you might be wondering why I would do that when I was so evidently ill and I knew it. But you see, um, 
I just knew that God had given me these opportunities to teach. And the fact that I was experiencing difficulty, I was still convinced that even in spite of that, I still had heard him correctly and that I was to teach these classes. In addition to that, in, the se- in several weeks prior to that day, in the different lessons, we'd been talking about serving the Lord despite the personal cost. We've been talking about leaving an example of commitment and service worth following. We've been talking about the fact that you cannot lead anyone where you yourself are unwilling to go. So how would it have been if I had preached all that and then not done it? So I um, went to church and I taught the three lessons. The next morning, Thursday, November the 20th, um, I decided that I needed to go and see the cardiologist. I was having pain radiating through my shoulder and into my jaw. And um, I went and I spoke to him and I told him, you know, I went from just a week or so ago from being able to do an hour-long spinning class at the gym and to be able to... uh, do five miles on an elliptical, I went from that to not being able to climb one set of stairs last night without having to stop four times on the way up. And I said, something is wrong. He decided to do several tests, and um, all of the cardiograms that he did were all fine, but he did say that he wanted me to have a CAT scan in the afternoon. And uh, so I went along to the imaging center. It was wonderful how God orchestrated it all because um, I went from the cardiologist to pick up my two kids from school. And, you know, they're high schoolers now. So I said to them, listen, I've got to go for a test. It's going to take a very long time. So you need not worry. Just stay at home, do your homework, and I'll see you later whenever that is. So they were at home, they weren't expecting me for some time, and I went along to the imaging center just down from Los Robles Hospital there, um, almost in the same parking lot. And uh, the, the scan was quick and easy. The technician, I could see him through the little window, and uh, I suddenly realized that something must be wrong because I saw him call the doctor who reads the scans to the machine. They conferred, and then it was the doctor who came to the door of my room. And so I knew that they'd found something, which actually for me was quite good. I'd asked friends to pray that it would be clear what the problem was. And indeed it was, because he came in and he told me that they had discovered multiple pulmonary emboli, blood clots, in my chest. What had happened was I had got a blood clot in my leg that, in fact, two, that had broken off and hit my lungs on two separate occasions, one on the Thursday night, one on the Monday night. And um, I had now 
blood clots shattered throughout my lungs. Um, and in fact, uh, he said that I would have to go into hospital immediately. They would not even need to print out the scan because in such circumstances they do what they call a wet reading, I think, where they don't even actually have to print out the document. And, you know, as he turned away from me, I heard very, very clearly in my mind something that God had said to my sister years before when she had been battling some th to accept some really difficult medical news herself. And what I heard was, Michelle, you don't have one single day less than you did before you heard the diagnosis. And so I felt peace, real peace. I went into the little change room to get dressed again. And as I stood there, I just prayed and I committed myself to God. And I did tell him, you know, Lord, I do not want to die. And it was because of my children. I mean, my husband, yes, too. But he, he could manage better than they could, you know, at 16 and 15 or 14 and a half. Anyway, um, when I went back out into the waiting room, they told me, that um, actually I was going to have to go to the ER in an ambulance. In fact, it was quite funny because they had to. Protocol insists that they dispatch a fire truck with it. So I had the ambulance and the fire truck. Oh, I gave those firemen such trouble because I kept on saying to them, why are you here? You think I'm going to spontaneously combust? <laughs> anyway... Um, <laughs> They said that I had to go up this, I, it's ridiculous. The imaging center's down there, the hospital is up there. And I thought, you know, maybe a friend could take me if they didn't want me driving. He said, no, no, the possibility of collapse is too great. You have to go by ambulance. And, you know, when he said the possibility of collapse, I thought collapse means you fall to the floor and you can't get up. It was only later that the cardiologist said, no, no, that was their polite way of telling you that they were concerned about you suffering sudden death. Because apparently um, your lungs can become so compromised that even though you're breathing, they're unable to absorb any of the oxygen. And when that happens, there is nothing they can do for you. Um, there's no way of restarting them because they're still going. It's just there's nothing that can be done. You know, God was amazingly good, though, because coming into the ER that way, it was the best way I could have possibly gone in because by the time I got there, they knew I was coming. They had a little room already ready for me, despite the fact that there were other people on gurneys in the corridors, you know. And also, my um, scans had been transmitted electronically up to the ER from the imaging center. Um, so everything was there ready. Um, I, I, I knew I was in trouble because they kept on asking me if I had a will and um, who would make decisions for me and uh, what were my uh, desires concerning life support. So, <laughs> so I told them, I don't care about life support, just make sure you feed me. <laughs> so... <laughs> I spent uh, six days in hospital, 
And at the end of the diagnosis, they did agree that it was caused by the pill that the OBGYN had put me on because, you know, with all my years of infertility, I had never been on a pill before. Um, and that is, in fact, what had caused my uh, problem. And it was the key factor that had been missed by the first doctor. Um, during the six days that I was there, uh, I was in room 316 which my friends all smiled at and laughed about because they saw it as a special love from God because, of course, John 3.16 is that famous scripture for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One of my friends who was with me Um, even thought to pray down in the ER for me to have a room with a view. Uh, Remarkable. Of all the things to pray for, she's praying for a room with a view. But, you know, God bless her because I room 316 has this wonderful view of the ridge, uh, you know, of Wildwood um, out the window. Just so beautiful. God was so faithful through it all. But, you know, there were things for me to learn if I had the right attitude, instead of lying in the bed saying, why? (laughs) Which we often like to do. I realized I needed to ask two questions. What and how? What is it you have me to learn in the midst of all of this? And how can I use it for the extension of your kingdom? You see, there was something to learn. Every morning when I woke up, I would be looking out toward the window and I'd open my eyes and I'd see that beautiful ridge of wildwood in the, in the distance. And it was just so gorgeous. You know, the truth is, is that there were all these ugly hospital roofs in the foreground and then the ridge in the background. But, you know, I never noticed those ugly roofs at all until a visitor happened to come by and say, nice view you got. And I said, why? It, it, it is beautiful, isn't it? And she said, no, no, I'm talking about the roofs. And I said, I not even noticed that. And, you know, it was then that God um, taught me something that faith is a lot like that because faith looks to the horizon. It focuses on his beauty, not the immediate ugliness of the circumstances that might surround us. And as we look to that hill, the foreground becomes blurry. It doesn't take our focus anymore if our eyes are fixed on him. So again, I was in hospital, and again, I was sitting there with my Bible open, going to um, that stream of living water. And as I did, the Lord spoke to me through another scripture in his word. It comes from Psalm 121, and it says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over his people 
will neither slumber nor sleep. So there was something I could learn. Lord, what can I learn? That's what it was. How can I use this for the extension of your kingdom? Well, I saw that answered in many ways. Because, for example, apparently I went into the uh, special care unit as the only person smiling they had seen in a very long time. They, it, they remarked on the fact that I was smiling. Not only that, but the community of believers was so evident because as my friends gathered around me, there were always people with me bringing flowers and, you know, other little things. You know, it was just a wonderful example of the fellowship we have with one another in Christ. But another thing was, and this is quite funny, I, I was known for how peacefully I would sleep. It's kind of amazing. I actually caught several nurses checking my vitals <laughs> because they thought I'd passed on during the night because <laughs> they couldn't wake me. And meanwhile, I was just sleeping very, very peacefully. But not only that, I think even more important than all of that, I was given the opportunity to live what I said I believed. And um, the truth is, Life is hard to get through, and sometimes the circumstances are very, very uncomfortable. But even in the toughest of times, there are streams of refreshing that flow from the Lord through His Word, and um, they come from us spending quiet time with Him and seeking His face. The question is, when hardships come our way, Will you go after that spring of living water? Or will you be found out in the backyard digging your own broken cistern as a way around the situation? Drink the water that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ and you will never be thirsty again. And in fact, not only will you not be thirsty but that living water will well up in you and overflow, touching the lives of others. Thank you.